This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to this special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Sydney Yu and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Aisha Hazarika, who's the host of Times Radio's Weekend Drive programme. She's also a former advisor to Ed Miliband and has recently been nominated for a political peerage by the leader of the opposition. Now, Aisha and Fraser, welcome. Um, Fraser, this week, Keir Starmer has had to U-turn on his £28 billion uh, Green Pledge. Can you tell us about how significant this U-turn is? I mean, it does seem like it's his first real hurdle. I think there's been quite a few hurdles, actually. When you think of what they proposed and then dropped, uh, we had Bridget Phillipson talking about how she's going to have an education revolution on par of the creation of the NHS. We've heard nothing, nothing more from that. And the 28 billion pledge wasn't just a idea, it was the central labour policy. This was supposed to be why business could trust labour rather than the Tories. And they had quite a strong narrative. Look at these Tories, four chancellors in one year, changing leaders um, every wet weekend. Uh, business craves stability and we will give you this and by the way we're going to um, follow Joe Biden's example having a securonomics not Bidenomics Rachel Reeves called it securonomics um, and that was going to be defined by borrowing and spending 28 billion pounds a year to invest in various green upgrades in a similar way to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in America the problem was that that was never really viable it's difficult for Britain to borrow those sums of money um, and it became um, impossible, really, after global interest rates went up. So this has been an undead policy for a while. So Keir Starmer was in a difficult position of having as his key economic policy something which obviously wasn't going to work. So he had planned to sort of fudge it, to say that he would do this eventually, in the same way that the Tories say they will cut tax eventually. You know, it's always a day that never quite comes when the fiscal rules allow. But that had become such a laughingstock they had to abandon it. And it seems to me this shows an important facet of Keir Starmer's Labour Party that they're not particularly, um, they're not a threat, I wouldn't say, in the same way that Jeremy Corbyn I would regard as a threat. They're not even particularly socialists. I just think there isn't very much there. They are the party of none of the above, really. They're the party that will say, if you've had enough of the Tories, vote for us, and we're not going to do anything much different. Now, while I've got my criticisms of that, I can't say it's an electorally unsuccessful strategy because Starmer has got a 20-point lead in the polls and is on forecast to win a landslide majority. But I think we're getting a clearer view of the sort of government we're getting, and it's one which is travelling very ideologically light. Aisha, how did Labour get itself into this kind of mess? You've seen how the sausage is made from the inside, as it were. Um, how does something like this get pledged and then become such a big row and then... Keir Starmer has to go back on it anyway. I suppose the answer is kind of events, dear boy, events. (laughs) I think that when Rachel Reeves became shadow chancellor, she wanted a, you know, a big shiny announcement and the the £28 billion was was announced. Of course, that was being pushed by Ed Miliband uh, as well. And there was a huge amount of enthusiasm for this policy. It remains an incredibly popular piece of flagship policy from 
all across the labor movement. It's quite difficult to get the labor movement to all agree on something. It was popular with the right of the party because it was very pro-business. It was popular with the left of the party because it showed credentials on climate change. You know, it kind of ticked lots of boxes. There was lots of kind of uh, regional, there was a heavy regional aspect to this as well. And industrials, the unions were pleased with it as well. So everybody really bought into it. I think the mistake that um, insiders will concede that it was perhaps naive and in fact was definitely naive to have slapped a a definite figure on it, particularly when we were so far away from uh, a general election. There's a lot of kind of mixed feelings across the Labour movement today. And I've been speaking to quite a few different people. I think people felt this was coming at gatherings of the Labour clan over the last sort of few weeks, there's been a kind of don't mention the war vibe and the, <laughs> the, the war has been the £28 billion. So there's been a kind of real nervousness because there have been all these sort of briefings from both camps in the press and, and briefing against each other always goes well. That's always a really excellent political strategy for giving everybody sort of confidence. So there's been this ratcheting anxiety about what's happening to this policy and then the sort of dithering over it has not helped. But now that the plan has finally been ripped off. I think there's quite there's quite mixed emotions. There's a bit of relief in the sense that it's just out there now. And I think people felt that where Streeting would have a terrible time on question time last night, but actually he put forward quite a good argument that all local candidates and councillors and everybody like that and other MPs will be able to, to to ape pretty well because it sounded quite common sense. The audience were not kind of howling and booing and, and hissing. Even Paddy McGuinness, you know, uh, was like, oh, yeah, this doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world. But I think where there is anxiety is about this narrative that is definitely developing that there's so many U-turns. What does the Labour Party actually stand for and you know is anything really going to make it into to government and is anything sort of solid so I think that's the sort of tensions I think there's there is a, a ruthless pragmatism that uh, that people quite like but on the other hand there is an anxiety which is sort of well what are we going to the election with what do we actually stand for Frisa, what about the timing of it then? Because um, as Aisha says, you know, the events kind of led step by step to this moment. But Rishi Sunak has had a pretty dreadful week, uh, starting with the Piers Morgan £1,000 bet. And then he was facing a huge furore over what he said about transgender people. And now headlines are being overtaken by the £28 billion thing. Do you think Keir Summer should have just waited another week? I'm not sure there was ever going to be a good time to announce this future. And his strategy so far has to been to keep quiet and let the Tories beat each other up. Now, that's been quite a successful strategy. Uh, now, of course, you, you're right, Cindy. Um, the Prime Minister was in serious trouble this week because of that uh, misplaced bet and then his other apparent lapse of judgment when he was um, making a transgender joke in the Commons in front of the, the mother of, of the murdered trans um, teenager. Then all of a sudden, along comes Keir Starmer with the U-turn and everybody's talking about Labour woes. But I think if you're running that strategy, you don't need to worry about lack of opportunities for the Tories to beat each other up. Something will be along next week and the week after that and the week after that. <laughs> so uh, um, I think he can, they can... That's the funny thing right now. I, um, I'm in a strange position here. Well, I do... Uh, um, 
I find it um, odd and disappointing that Labour has so little uh, of an agenda. And in my column, I sort of accuse them of having no ideas at all. But nonetheless, I can see the logic. He can afford a year right mm. now. He's 20 points ahead in the polls. Now, what's going to be the price he pays for it? Do we think he's going to end up 17 points ahead? No, I don't think he'll pay any opinion poll price at all. Because he is strategically deciding to present as small a target as possible. Um, he didn't want to give the Tories anything to beat him over the head with. They were using £28 billion. They started to say... And it wasn't just the Tories. I mean, you know, it was difficult for a Labour minister to appear on Aisha's show or any other show, really, without being teased about this policy, which was obviously going to be dropped. So what do they... They bite the bullet, they take it off the table. Yes, they get teased for a few days. But overall, I think this makes them less vulnerable, I think, to the bows and arrows of the opposition or, or, or anybody else. So I can see the strategic merit in doing what they've done this week. And if I were Keir Starmer's advisor, um, as Aisha was once Ed Miliband's advisor, I would have advised him to do exactly this. Um, Aisha, what is the answer to that question of what does Labour stand for going into this election? Because it's quite a good offering, as we were saying on the podcast earlier this this week, to say that we're just not the Conservative Party. <laughs> That's quite persuasive, clearly, by judging by the polls. But what is their positive agenda? What are they actually thinking and wanting? Well, I mean... A, lot, a candidate actually said to me last week that if this $20 billion does get junked and everybody expects it to be junked, they said, this is like, you know, one big thing that we can, you know, really articulate clearly on the doorstep and when we're doing our, our meetings as, you know, we've got very, very different vision. I think Fraser is sort of right. I think the characters that dominate the Labour Party at the moment and the people who Keir Starmer really, really listens to are really trying to persuade him and successfully persuading him that he doesn't need a kind of big, hopey, changey narrative. They are people who have got the scars on their backs for many, many Labour defeats. I have, you know, stood side by side with them. And their message to him, and and I think the message that he has really got in his head now, is that it doesn't really matter what Labour's vision is Labour has got to win. You know, we just had this interesting anniversary. It was 100 years very recently since the first ever Labour Prime Minister was elected in this country. And in the last 100 years, we've only had six Labour Prime Ministers. Now, the Conservatives have had five Prime Ministers just since 2010. So that gives your listeners and everybody a kind of an understanding of how rare it is to have a Labour Prime Minister in this country. It's like kind of as rare as hen's teeth. And I remember from my own experiences on working on the 2010 campaign when I was working for Harriet Harman and Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling was absolutely not some kind of raving socialist that was going to spend loads of money. In fact, Alistair Darling was criticised by people on the left for, for saying that he would actually have to mete out some austerity. And yet the Tories absolutely hammered Labour very successfully saying they crashed the economy. Why would you trust these guys with the keys to the car again? In 2015, Ed Bowles, you know, really sort of made sure that we are, are we were not going to go kind of crazy on the economy again. Again, we got attacked from the left saying, gosh, you're too conservative in terms of your fiscal plans. And yet again, we still got hammered on being, um, you know, you can't be trusted on the economy. So the economy is the absolute Achilles. Forget all the culture war stuff and all that kind of stuff. I understand that plays well in some audiences, but the economy is the traditional and perennial Achilles heel for the Labour Party. So I think what Keir Starmer and his team are doing are just putting 
the economy first. They're just completely safeguarding themselves in the economy. They were, of course, gifted an advantage with, with Liz Truss and the fallout from that. And they're just trying to get across the line. The only thing they're focused on is winning. And I think across the Labour movement, there will be disappointment today. There'll be a lot of people who are genuinely quite upset about this about this U-turn. But people, most people, and I actually spoke to some people from the kind of more hard left of the party, and even their view is we're probably all going to have to hold our nose to get Starmer over the line because everybody wants a Labour government. And the the sort of the message that is going out across the movement from the Blairites right through to the people who still think Jeremy Corbyn should have some sort of part in the Labour Party. There is one point of unity, and that is Labour has got to win almost at sort of any cost. Now, Labour has got to win. Mm. And Fraser, looking ahead then, let's say that Labour does win and it does look that way at the moment. Is this episode a demonstration of the kind of splits within the party that we will see once they are in government. We're used to talking about Tory psychodrama, but Aisha has already you know, mentioned these Labour tribes that have been talking about this. So, I mean, are the splits within the shadow front bench just possibly just as big as the Conservative front bench? Yeah, I think that Rachel Reeves isn't being ideological here. She's simply saying to her party, look, we don't have the money for this and nor can we get it. I mean, unlike previous Labour governments, they're going to be inheriting a government which is taxing the country as about as much as we can bear. The economy is barely moving right now because it's being taxed so much. So the usual tools Labour would have previously to increase public spending, increase the tax burden, just simply aren't available, other than trivial amounts to be raised from non-doms and private schools. So I think there's going to be a bit of a um, a reality-biting exercise where a lot of people in Labour are going to work out, but what they would normally do isn't going to happen because the money isn't there. Now, you can see those with for whom reality has already bit, like Darren Jones, for example, very thoughtful, um, Rachel Reeves' deputy, Reeves herself, Starmer to an extent. All of these guys realise that they're going to have to go back to the reform or the Blair era because the investment option isn't going to be there. Now, a lot of other people, like um, I'd place Adam Milliman in this category, you might be able to, to correct me, but certainly some of the more, let's just say, idealistic Labour members always thought that the whole purpose of Labour government is to basically to spend, to give things that the parsimonious Tories would not. And it's going to take a while to get the instinct out of her system to work out that it's not just Rachel Reeves trying to suck up to the middle class. It really is difficult to expand the government much bigger than it is right now without um, suffocating what life that remains there in the economy. And I think this is going to lead to quite a lot of disappointment when, when, and I think it will be when Labour gets into office. Starmer will have to spend a long time telling his party, look, I know you want X, Y and Z, but we just can't afford it. The most he can do is string them along saying, look, we'll do this when the conditions allow. I think the biggest risk comes in Darren Jones's theory, which he explained to Katie Balls a few weeks ago in the magazine, that the the money extra isn't going to come from taxing people, he says, it's not going to come from borrowing, it's going to come from businesses investing more in the economy because they are more encouraged by the stability that the Labour government offers than they were with the Tories. Now, what if that doesn't happen? Where will the growth come from then? Where will the money come from then? That is what's going to... I think, lead to some very difficult decisions. Now, in my view, it will force Labour to do things which I think are very necessary. Welfare reform, for example. The Tories are completely ignoring this. I think that uh, Ali McGovern's taking this more seriously, and I think they'll start to move there. I think West Streeting will be forced to do um, NHS reform, be bolder than the Conservatives. In a strange way, you might get Labour government doing more 
of what a magazine like The Spectator would want the Conservative government to do. If the Tories aren't doing it because they're politically afraid, my feeling is Labour will have to do it because there simply won't be an option. In the same way that... Um, the Blair government did it because Brown put them under very tight spending restraints between ninety one and ninety seven and two thousand and one, a very tight envelope which forced them to innovate and forced them to reform. But that was by choice. Brown spent later on. Now this isn't through choice. But I do think we can we will see these splits between between those who realise the, the limits that the Tories have left them with and those who haven't realised it yet. Well, I think there's no doubt that if Labour does win, and look, the election is still a a while off and Labour is very good at losing elections, let's not forget that, they are going to inherit a really, really difficult situation. I mean, you speak to the people who were around Blair and Brown in the run-up to 1997, and they look at what Keir Starmer has to contend with now, and it is so much more difficult. There is just not going to be a huge amount of money to splash around. We know that just looking in terms of what is just projected from the OBR, there's a huge amount of departmental cuts that are coming down the track. So, you know, how is Labour going to deal with essentially having to deal out some austerity? They're banking on growth, but they don't just arrive in Downing Street and pull a big lever called growth. Growth is dependent on many, many factors. We've not even counted geopolitics. Geopolitics has absolutely thrown domestic economies out of whack with the best laid plan. So there's there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And I do think that lots of people across the Labour movement who are thinking a lot about what Labour will do in um, government. I've got a podcast with Sam Friedman where we are stress testing different policies and the, and the challenges. It is going to be really, really difficult. And I think there is going to be uh, a sense of is it going to be possible for Keir Starmer to come in and do the big things that Tony Blair did quickly, like the national minimum wage and lots of other things like tax credits? Probably not. Definitely not. It's going to be really, really difficult. And I think there will be a lot of people who are already sort of preparing for, you know, howls of betrayal from from day one once Keir Starmer's over the line. I don't think he's going to have a huge honeymoon period from obviously from from the right wing press, but also from the left um, within his own party. I think there'll be a lot of upset right from from the start. But what I do think is really interesting about Starmer is just knowing him quite well. I'd say out of every political leader that I have worked with, he has got sort of an incredibly cool head and he is incredibly pragmatic. And I think what we have kind of lacked in our politics for, you know, really, you know, since probably David Cameron left, although I was not a fan of the austerity he and George Osborne meted out, and I think that's done a huge amount of damage. We haven't had really anybody with a very kind of cool head and who's very, very good at kind of managing things in Downing Street for a very, very long time. And I think it will be interesting to see if, you know, his kind of character, the fact that he has run things before, he's completely transformed the Labour Party in a way that absolutely nobody, including myself, could could have imagined. I think his sort of ruthlessness has been quite an un- quite an unexpected thing from him. And I think that will sort of carry on when he does get into government. But the one thing that I think will be interesting to see is now how much more gets watered down. So 
the thing that's holding a lot of the unions at bay from from criticizing Starmer and Reeves is the New Deal for Working People, which is seen as a, a, a very progressive, very pro-worker agenda. It's something that the unions are really behind, the base is really behind, people really kind of love this. But you're already starting to see a bit of grumbling from business. We had the new sort of chief of the, the CBI kind of grumbling about this, saying that they were going to be lobbying Labour to water this down. And I think that's going to be one to to watch because I think if that gets watered down now, I think you may well see people breaking ranks and actually being much more openly critical of of Keir Starmer, particularly from from the union side. Isha, can I ask you if you can perhaps set me right on my perhaps pessimistic view of Keir Starmer. I think, as you say, he has decorbanized the Labour Party with a speed and professionalism which has been remarkable. I think he also, his team have been very efficient, very disciplined. They have won lots of selection battles. So the, the, the probably we're going to get um, perhaps a couple of hundred Labour MPs, new ones, of the next election and they'll all be what Katie Balls calls stormtroopers, very much in the leader's um, mould. But the criticism I have of him right now is that while he's done the weeding, rooting out Corbynism, he hasn't done much of the planting. He hasn't really replaced it. In the same way that Gordon Brown was good at taking out Blairism, but not really putting in much of his own agenda in place. I can define Starmerism in that it is the extinguishing of Corbynism. I can see that. But other than that, I'm not quite sure what he believes or what he would do. Now, perhaps that's because of my political bias, but I imagine from your perspective, you might be able to you you might have a more optimistic view about what he stands for and what he would achieve as opposed to what he would prevent. Well, I think probably I'm not going to be able to give you a big ideological sort of hero, his kind of big ideological hobby horses, because I think the curious thing about this leader of the Labour Party who is set to, if everything goes according to the polls, be the next Labour Prime Minister, is he is a curiously unideological creature. He hasn't come from any faction within the labor movement so you don't say right okay this is his, these are the things that he absolutely kind of these are the hills that he will die on this is the gang of people that he will always protect this is his tribe and so much of labor politics is determined by tribalism. I mean, the Labour yeah, Party. But we all remember, I guess, like John, John Reid and Milburn were were known for you know being communists in their youth, weren't they? And almost everybody so far, you could see what they were doing in the twenties and thirties and get a feel for the politics. But Keir Starmer was basically shoveling his way up through the legal civil service at that time, so it's difficult to yeah. work out. It's I mean, he did flirt. To be fair to him, he did flirt with well, far left, but pretty. The, the hard end of the soft left, if you like, you know, he was famous for taking some sort of big cases against corporations like McDonald's and things like that. But I think he is, I would say he's one of the most kind of managerial leaders that I've I've met. Like when I spend time with him and, you know, I know him, I've known him for, for a number of, of years now. He's one of these people who is incredibly strategic like I remember people saying absolutely yonks ago when he sort of became an MP, watch out for him. He he is the one that he'll, you know, he'll want to be leader one day, even though he's kind of said, oh, no, that's not really my sort of mindset. I think he just works in an incredibly strategic way. I think it also most other Labour leaders, like you could say, Ed Miliband, what what does he want? You, you'd know it's kind of spirit level politics and the environment. That's the things he really, really cares about. Gordon Brown, you absolutely knew what he kind of stood for. It was like global inequality, fighting poverty. You sort of knew what these kind of things were. And I think 
the interesting thing about, and maybe the frustrating thing, I do understand that from a political point of view, I think he is, I think he he's soft left in his heart. I think he very much cares about sort of decency and social justice, if you like. But he does have this sort of quite hard edge to him about success. Like, I think he wants to do well for himself. He wants to do well for, for his party. And that's what he's done. And I think he becomes prime minister. He'll want to do well for the country. I think he'll he'll actually be quite well suited to being in Downing Street. I don't think the structure of Downing Street will discombobulate him like it does other people because I think he's worked in you know environments like the crime prosecution service he doesn't court like he's one of these I remember I I met him once and there was this like we had a breakfast once and there had been some kind of weird briefings against him and I remember saying to him are you you raging about these people and he genuinely was like no I'm genuinely not he's he's a he's a man who does not have great sort of anger or sort of passions about people kind of either praising him or criticizing him and that's quite a rare thing for political leaders but you are I think where you do have a point Fraser and this is the thing that candidates and others and as we get closer to the election we get into the short campaign particularly those TV debates the question that Starmer and his team will really have to work on is when Julie Etchingham or Laura Koonsberg or whoever says to him and you know you've got your 40 seconds to make your pitch to the to the country what do you really, really, really stand for? I think that's the thing that they've still got to do a lot of work on because, of course, the follow-up question will be like, well, you said you believed in the green economy, you've jumped that. You said that you believed in Jeremy Corbyn, you jumped that. So that's the the messaging and, and not just the messaging, the really deep thinking they've, they've got to do more and I think we'll get that over the, the next couple of months. I certainly hope so. Aisha and Fraser, thank you very much. And thank you for listening at home. If you enjoyed this podcast, do give us a rating and a review. And why not tell a friend about it?